The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to a very refreshing hour of business talk. This is HR Trends with Game Changers, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. You'll hear from the innovators who know how to use game-changing technologies and strategies to shake up the status quo in human resources and help your organization move in exciting new directions. Now, here's your host and moderator, Bonnie D. Graham. Welcome, 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 and if <laughs> welcome, 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 and if you want to run with the Game Changers, you're in the right place. Yes, you are. This is HR Trends with Game Changers. If you're keeping track, it's Season 3, Episode number 9, and it's Monday, November 3rd. Happy November to everyone, post-Halloween weekend. We have a very important topic today, as always. Our topic, the buzz, is leaders. Let's get started. I'm going to throw some terms out at you. Employee engagement, employee retention, your employer brand, your workforce strategies. Guess what? The leaders you select, whether hiring and promoting from the inside or bringing from the outside, will be the ones to make or break your strategies. And I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but some people say the trends are ominous, not looking too good. How can your company beat the odds? Well, we have an idea for you. You need to go on a critical mission to make identifying and developing the right kind of leaders very, very important. Out front, up close and personal, up front center, that's where your energy needs to go. Sounds good on paper, but how can you do it? We have a panel of experts, as always, who are going to take us through this, give you some great ideas. Let me introduce our first panelist, new to our radio show. It's Justin Locke. He's an author, musician, man about town, renaissance guy. We'll find out more about him later. And Justin sent me the following quote. Leadership development is in direct conflict with the core management ideology of the Industrial Revolution, where obedience, uniformity, and the smooth running of the factory are more important than the people working in it. I'm going to stop there. That's a big, robust quote. Justin Locke, welcome. How are you today? Well, I'm just fabulous and honored to be here. Thank you, Bonnie. Well, we're delighted to have you. So tell me a little bit about this quote. It's a very uh, compelling opening, putting us in juxtaposition where we are today with the Industrial Revolution. So take us through that and a little bit of history, perhaps, Justin. Go ahead. Well, I've always been fascinated with, you know, schools and the schools I went to because I first went to an industrial public school and then I went to a private school. And, you know, if we're going to talk about leadership, why don't we talk about all the energy that that, uh, we, we don't have a clean slate here. You know, we, we have a, you know, people have backgrounds. Very few people get into a leadership position until they're in their 20s, 30s, sometimes even 40s and 50s before they're actually mm-hmm. put in charge of other people. And it's totally unfamiliar. And there's an emotional element to it. It, it, it's, it exposes your vulnerability to be, to, to be a, a manager or a leader. You know, you're, you're out there in charge. And, you know, for a lot of people, it's, it's, a, it's a big uh, change. It's, it's a big, big, you know, big process to go through. And so when you try to do it kind of late in the game as opposed to cultivating it early on, that's a big problem with uh, creating leadership is that you have all sorts of people who are trained to be followers. 
Very interesting. Justin, uh, would you say that people, you gave quite an age range there, 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, would you say that people who are asked to assume a leadership role later in their lives, chronological lives we're talking about, have this sense of, wow, they picked me, I've arrived, I've made it, and then they look in the mirror and say, what the blank am I supposed to do now? Do you see that happening at all? Oh, I see that. That, that is the, 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 you know, the benchmark. That's the way it works all the time. You know, I took up uh, partner dancing late in life, uh, in, mm-hmm. in my late 30s, 40s. And I walked into class and said, they said, okay, you're the leader. And I said, excuse me? <laughs> and I had no clue. I didn't understand that I was supposed to take charge, and now I'm responsible for everything that happens. And the followers just look at you with this, you know, kind of a blank stare, and, every, and I've seen that with conductors. I've seen that all kinds of people who decided, you know, because we all sit back and say, boy, if I was in charge, if I was in charge, I could do this so much better. Mm-hmm. You know, armchair quarterbacking. And then when you get out there on the field, suddenly you'll realize just how hard it is to do. It's a sobering experience, which a lot of people never actually go through. And when you do, uh, it's, it's tough. It's tough. And, you know, for many people, they just don't know how to treat other people because they're so used to just following orders. It's a That's very true difference of polarity it's almost like a sex change operation i mean it's just it's a completely different way of looking at the world because now justin that's another show that's another show we're not going to do that today Uh, (laughs) justin i i you and i both know we met on the phone on a prep call a couple weeks ago we both share a great love for ballroom dancing and you're a, a maven in west coast swing and i do almost everything else working on my tango now but you're right that leader role the leader is just it's so full of responsibility, and what the heck do I do next? Where do I go? How do I style it? How do I lead? How do I communicate to my partner? I think that's the biggest question mark a leader has on the dance floor and in life and in the workplace. So thank you for a very provocative, very provocative opening to our show, Justin Lock. Hang tight. I'm going to bring in our second panelist. She's a repeat guest here. We're delighted to have her back. It's Janet Wood. She's an executive vice president of talent and leadership at SAP. And Janet has sent me a very interesting quote from Virginia Romady at IBM. And here's the quote. I learned to always take on things I'd never done before. Growth and comfort do not coexist. That really nails it. Janet Wood, welcome back. How are you today? I'm great. Thanks, Bonnie. Thanks for having me back. Wonderful. Great quote. Talk to me about Ginny Romady and why you picked the quote. And, And I know it has a lot to do with what we just talked about with Justin Locke. Go ahead. Well, I think the reason that that quote's really resonated with me is because it's a little bit of a a summary of things that I've done in my career, although I didn't really take them on intentionally. I spent most of my career in sales, then I had an opportunity to go in and and create and lead what we call the maintenance go-to-market organization. was never a part of the business that I'd ever aspired to or asked to go into, but the opportunity presented itself, and I thought, hey, this is in a software business. This is typically... Half the revenue, most of the profit, seems like a really good area to know more about. And then about a year ago, I was asked to, to go into the HR organization and take on leading our leadership development and talent management, executive recruiting, a number of different kind of really street key strategic areas in HR. So my own personal experience has been that I know that I've really grown as a leader, having the opportunity to be in direct sales, indirect sales, the maintenance business, and now HR and I just feel like while it's stressful, there's no question going into an area you don't know is stressful, you come out the other end with kind of a whole much broader set of skills and perspective on the business. 
Thank you, Janet. Do, do you feel that along the way you were being groomed for this? Did you feel that every step on the ladder up, left, right, sideways, wherever you were going, was part of this this grooming process where you were going to assume a great leadership role? What, what was your what your plan? Was it laid out for you, or did it just evolve? Well, I'd love to say I had a plan, but it just evolved. I think I was just really fortunate. Uh, I'm, I'm luckily I'm quite adaptable by nature. I'm really open to making changes. I don't have a perceived, you know, I must go from step A to B to C to D. So I'm just one of those people that's open to it. And I can tell you that now in SAP, we really are focused on making sure our leaders do get cross-board area experience mm-hmm. and cross-region experience because we know that will make them better leaders. So I think I just lucked into it, but we're being much more thoughtful about it for leadership at SAP now. Interesting. And I'm just going to take a second here, Janet, to relate the second part of your quote from Virginia Romedy to what Justin said in terms of the dancing paradigm. I think we might come back to that often on during the show. Growth and comfort do not coexist. So I would say, and, and Janet, tell me if you agree with me, that if you're growing as a leader on the dance floor, you might step on a few toes in the process. Is that such in life? Absolutely. Step on a few toes, need a little bit of help, and uh, be willing to deal with uncertainty and you know complexity and a bunch of things that maybe you didn't have to do in your previous role. That's right. Just keep dancing. Thank you both. And it's time to bring on our third panelist, also a return guest at here at HR Trends Radio. It's Carrie Williard. She's the Vice President of Learning and Social Adoption in the SAP Cloud. And uh, this is an interesting quote. Carrie, I, I picked this up from one of your previous, experience, uh, previous appearances here, and it just seems so perfect. You say, few workplaces have planned well for what it will take to lead the next generation of employees. Welcome back, Carrie Williard. How are you today? I'm fine. Good to be back with you, Bonnie. Wonderful. Talk to me about this quote. It fits, doesn't it? Well, you know, a really typical way to think about developing our leaders is to look at the ones that we already have that have been successful. So we plan our competencies based on uh, who, who's successful now and how did they get here and uh, what were the capabilities that got them to this place. But life is constantly changing, and so if we look even just five years ahead at what the world is going to look like, I think it's going to look fairly dramatically different, where uh, most workplaces are going to be at least half millennial, and Mm -hmm. so we have to look forward as well, because it takes time to develop leaders. So we don't develop a leader, oh gosh, we need a leader next month, you know, it takes years Mm -hmm. to begin to develop a leader, and so... Thinking of now and what got people successful to now, plus what's it going to take to the future, is you know is an interesting thing to do. And I don't find many companies that have got this picture of what does 2020 leadership look like in our in our company. Very interesting, uh, Carrie. Would you say that uh, there's a more thoughtful approach, a more mindful approach, and a more under the microscope, perhaps, or shall we just say through a, a clearer lens of watching the process of developing leaders? Is that something you're observing that we're doing it on purpose now? We're we're seeing what works, right? And you know, if I can, if I can just prod Justin a, a tad here, just to make it uh, kind of interesting. <laughs> I I think the first management revolution was the industrial age. But I think there was a second one in the 1950s with Peter Drucker. So I think he introduced this uh, science of, of management. And I think that was really the, the, the second big management revolution. 
and I think we're going through the third one now that's influenced by how does the web work and, you know, who's in charge of the web and people that are looking at can we have organizations with fewer leaders and so on. So you don't necessarily notice change when you're in the midst of it, but I think we're in the the midst of a third revolution now. I'd be interested to hear what Justin has to say about that. Justin, you're up. Well, uh, you know, I'm pretty intimidated by the fast company you got on this show here, Bonnie. But, uh, <laughs> That's why we invited you. We wanted oh, to intimidate you. No, wanted to put you through, the, through your paces. Well, I will, I will tell you that in, I'm coming from an artistic perspective. You know, this is mm-hmm. when I come into corporate America, I, I just hit this, this cultural uh, shock that, that hits me over the head. Now, the nuances, and I understand I'm a big fan of Peter Drucker. And he was my original quote, by the way. You remember, Bonnie, mm-hmm. when, when we did yes, this. The, who is your customer? The quote was, yep. Uh, who is your customer? What does he find to be a value? That is an artistic statement because all that is is about perceiving your audience. It's not about how to make things go faster or, you know, illuminate Muda and the Toyota Lean uh, production line. And even Drucker talked about there should be a revolution every 50 years. And I will, uh, you know, defer and say, okay, I'm talking in fairly broad uh, terms here because I'm, I'm relating to Marshall McLuhan. I'm trying to, you know, bring these, you know, long-lost ideas back up because he predicted the World Wide Web and what was going to happen. And we're kind of going from what we do to is not that's always the question of what do you do the question now is who are you because what you do is not really as important as, as that personal connection that that, that you offer so uh, how we you know can I, can I really speak intelligently about corporate management the way Carrie can absolutely not <laughs> uh, sorry <laughs> so I, I've got your book here by the way I, I, you can't plug it but I can very interesting and uh, you know try because I don't work in that culture so I'm I'm coming mm-hmm. at this you know if and Weinberg says if you can't fix it feature it you know I don't have any experience but that gives me objectivity so I'm bringing an artistic um, perspective to this as, and whether that has any value or not well that that remains to be seen but that's kind of where I'm going is an artistic revolution where you really think totally in terms of just connection uh, and perception uh, of your and audience Justin, not, I, I this uh-huh. is Bonnie I have to footnote this so that everybody knows what Justin is talking about he played bass in the Boston Pops for 18 years and he worked with such renowned conductors and leaders as Arthur Fiedler John Williams and many other top conductors he also managed the Bose Philharmonic and did musical plays for children and, that are performed all over the world. So that's the reference, everyone, to the the cultural, the musical, the performance side that Justin Locke is referencing. But you know what? I'm going to circle back. I want to find out a little more about the personalities, as if we don't already know a lot about our three panelists. So I'm going to circle back to Justin Locke and ask you, you know, the key question in our opening segment is, what's in your cup today or what do you wish you were drinking? So Justin Locke, tell us a little story, and then we will have Janet Wood and Carrie Williard give us there. So Justin, go ahead. Okay, well, I'll tell a pop story. It seems appropriate. Uh, you may have seen the Pops on the 4th of July, that TV show that they do every year. And mm-hmm. uh, when we play down there in that hat shell in the park, uh, unlike Symphony Hall, there was you know, no, no restaurant, no bar to access. We had a nine-minute intermission, and I instituted a tradition where we would bring seven beers and food backstage, and there was this famous base section intermission party. We had exactly nine minutes to go back, open it up, eat it, drink it, put it away, and get back on the stage. <laughs> And one night it was my turn, and we were all just one-upping each other, bringing the most outrageous thing. People were bringing lobster and having pizzas delivered. And and I went into a liquor store, and I said, I need something unusual. And they said, here, it's called Molson Brador. I'd never heard of it, so I bought that. And we ran backstage. We all drank this beer that I brought. We came back out. It it wasn't beer. 
It was what malt was liquor. It? And the seven of us had just chugged the equivalent of two and a half beers in about four minutes. And I will, you know, we have only have an hour, so I'll just leave it there. At there, but let me tell you, musical mayhem ensued. That's all I will. <laughs> Talk about the spaces, leadership. The spaces were loaded. Very well put. Talk about leadership, a crisis of leadership. I think you had one. You might have actually sounded phenomenal. Janet Wood, I will not ask you to top that story, but what's in your cup today, or what are you thinking of drinking after the show, Janet? Well, as you know, Bonnie, I now live in Germany, so it's after 7 o'clock at night, and what I wish I had in my hand was a really nice, crisp German Riesling, which we've come to love since we've Mm -hmm. come here. But unfortunately, it's my new favorite green tea, which is green tea with vanilla, which I absolutely love. Can't get enough of it. So that's until after the show's over. Then I'll move on to the Riesling. Okay. Do you have a special uh, label of Riesling you'd like to recommend to us, Janet? Oh, there's so many really uh, nice ones here. There's uh, Philip Kuhn is a, is a German winery, and he's got some really nice Rieslings. And how do you spell Kuhn, just so I can tweet this? What's the... Uh, K-U-H-N. Is it? I knew it would be something interesting. Thank you very much for sharing that. <laughs> Carrie Williard, where are you calling from today, and what's in your cup? Uh, well, I am in Colorado, and we've had this unbelievable, uh, what's called Indian summer, that came up until just today, and now it's rainy and cold, and so I, of course, have to have some... A, a latte next to me to just feel warm um, and have the fireplace in the background to, to get get toasty and ready for the show. Thank you very much. Let's see what I'm drinking today. Well, they just told me no caffeine on Mondays, Bonnie, because it's the beginning of Rado Week, so I'm on plain water. What can I tell you? Filtered mm. and at its best, oh. not too cold. I know, Justin, I know. I'll have to do something about that after the show. Okay, everyone, you know what? My panelists work very hard. We're 20 minutes into the show. We're going to take a very brief break, about 90 seconds. Our topic today, mission critical, identifying and developing leaders. If your company feels you're having a leadership crisis, listen in. I have a great panel of thinkers, speakers, writers. They know what they're talking about, and we're going to learn from them. Our leadership panel today is Justin Locke, Janet Wood, and Carrie Williard. I'm Bonnie D. Graham. We'll be right back. Don't even think of touching that mouse, that app, that dial. Matt out. Always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. With companies like yours competing aggressively for top talent today, HR tactics must be comprehensive and precise. Today's reality? Your organization is faced with the demands of a multi-generational and globalized workforce, diversity and inclusion policies, work-life integration challenges, and more. The bottom line? You need to attract and retain the best fit talent to support your strategies and goals, optimize your employee engagement, and become an industry-leading employer of choice. HR Trends with Game Changers is presented by SAP. Visit www.sap.com. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. TRN. 
You're enjoying HR Trends with Game Changers, presented by SAP. Email your comments and questions to bonnie.d.gram at sap.com. And you're invited to tweet during and after the live show at Twitter hashtag SAPRADIO. Now, let's get back to HR Trends with Game Changers. Welcome back. Our topic today is Mission Critical, Identifying and Developing Leaders, a.k.a. if you're having a leadership crisis, listen up. We have some great insights and advice and pointers for you. We're going to start our roundtable about 25 minutes straight through with our guest, Justin Locke. And Justin, I was going to start off with a comment here from you. Simply avoiding or correcting errors is not leadership. But I think I'm going to dial back a little bit earlier in the notes you sent me and go somewhere else. I think you'll agree with this. You say we often try to divine leadership in industrial terms, e.g., a list of actions or a list of observable attributes. So if that's what companies are doing, is that a good starting place or not? Justin Locke, why don't you kick us off, please? Well, it's a cultural language problem is that when you have a list of attributes, you've basically made a machine. It's kind of like, you know, you drive your car in and they give you a new alternator. Here's, here's your leader doesn't work. Here's a new machine list of things that they, they must emulate the following list and put that in back in the machine and everything will run smooth again. It's a simple concept. You cannot lead by following. So if you are constantly following uh, instructions and basically coming back saying, oh, here's a bunch of instructions that I got on high, you're not, you're not a leader. You're just a, a conduit of, of someone else's instructions. You have to have that permission. I saw this manifest all the time in conductors. This is what I like, love to talk about is this because it was so night and day. You know, some conductors would stand up like John Williams never gave me any instructions to do anything. He just stood there and looked very optimistic for 10 years. And you, you just felt like you had to play your best, whereas other conductors were, they were afraid. They were afraid of errors because that exposes your vulnerability, that exposes mm-hmm. your imperfection. And when I talk about industrial ideology, it's very much of an emotional thing for me of how do you deal with imperfections in people? How do you deal with variations in people? Well, this, this leader has this, this leader has that. I mean, if you made a list of what made Winston Churchill a great leader as opposed to what made FDR a great leader, you would not have the same things on those lists. So how do you codify leadership in that way? It's really more about uh, permission and uh, you know, that, that, that unique personality traits that, that are allowed to come out. Uh, but that's that's just one you know response of many I could give over a course of an hour, and I want to keep it short. Yeah, well, you know, a great point, and, and let's ha- hear what Janet Wood has to say on that. Janet, agree, disagree with Justin? Or is that a good starting point for, for what you do or don't do in developing leaders today? I would agree with Justin. Um, and I also ask him the question, I think, and to Carrie as well, agility. I mean, something we're really focused on within SAP is how do we help our leaders become agile so they can adjust. So they can be what they need to be based on the situation or the way the market changes or what's happening with the customer. So I'd be interested in your perspective on agility and how it plays into the comment you just made. Uh, well, I love the word agility uh, because it is a parallel concept 
to what I love to talk about, conductors are doing the exact same thing. And, uh, you know, not that I can claim to be an expert on agile software development, but, yeah, I think everybody, every human being can outsmart every system. So everybody's looking at the system, and, you know, in every company you've got the, you know, the, the mission statement, but everybody knows the, the real deal and what gets you fired and what gets you promoted and rewarded in this company culture. Everybody knows what that is, and it's kind of a personal thing that you get to know around people. So if someone knows that they have permission to take risks, uh, do they have permission to fail? Uh, I knew a company once where everybody had the power to say no and no one had the power to say yes. I, I love that quote. Uh, that's really where, it, and it's kind of in the culture. You can't just put it in, in, in the, uh, you know, the book that you hand out to people. So my question for you is, do, do you give your leaders permission to fail? It's a great question. It's something we're definitely working on because we know, especially in the cloud environment, and it'll be great to get Carrie's input here, mm-hmm. that that's uh, a must-do. But at the same time as you give employees permission to fail, you have to give them the tools to really do a risk assessment and understand the significance of the decisions they're making. So that if, if the outcome, if it's the wrong decision, can be catastrophic, then you want them to have the tools to understand, I need to get some additional insight into this. If they do the risk assessment and it's something that can be recoverable, then, you know, go for it. But I think we have to be careful we don't just say, and I know you're not implying this, that we just have to have permission to fail. We also have to make sure the employees understand the weight of that responsibility and how to act, mm-hmm. you know, accordingly. Oh, because you have the opposite problem, people who have no restraint, mm-hmm. uh, you know, who will, uh, they just love to go and fail, and they're, they're willing to bet, you know, all the company's money on one horse, you know, because they're adventurers. And so you, you have to you watch out for those guys too, or girls, whatever. But, but yeah, it, it, but it becomes this, this very dicey thing as we're discussing here. What, what, what do we do about fail? And I'm, and I'm kind of curious what Carrie thinks about, you know, millennials. Are they, are they as failure-phobic as my generation was? <laughs> Carrie? I, I, I don't think so um, because, you know, they've just had the opportunity to, to fail more online and realize they can recover from it. But, you know, Justin, I, I, wanted, to, I wanted to kind of bring the two comments together from you and, and Janet because uh, when I was doing my doctorate, I got to spend uh, a year watching, uh, you know, I planned an ethnographic study essentially going into the Pittsburgh Symphony Orchestra and watching every guest conductor as they came in for the first oh my time. Goodness, I want to hear about this. Go on. Wow. Then, go ahead. Yeah, and then comparing, you know, what did leadership? I was looking for leadership attributes and how how they worked, and I thought, and then and then I compared to, okay, what did the reviews say of the performance and so on, and I thought that the best performances, the best leaders, were ones who came in and uh, and let people inside the symphony participate in the leadership process. Mm. So you saw, you know, at least what I could see across a half a dozen different conductors, world famous and not, was the ones that, that allowed people to shine and bring their gifts to the table in terms of an opinion, a view, like during the, perform- during the rehearsals. You know, he would, it was always a he, he would, he would ask, um, mm-hmm. what do you think, what is this auditorium, you know, wh- what do we need to be careful about with this particular auditorium, um, it, it, and so I think leadership can happen peer-to-peer and, and, and upward as well, so people don't have to just sit and follow, I think everyone can be a leader if they choose to in the circumstance, and I think that's where 
millennials are seeing this contribution society, this contribution economy, um, and getting a chance to think about leading earlier. I don't know. What do you think? Uh, I think you, I think we're kind of you know saying the same things with different labels. But let me put my own label on what I'm because I'm agreeing with you, and that all resonates. Is that when you get in a leadership position, you know, in the old system, you know, like a school teacher that I remember, I mean, you had to keep order, and that was really the number one thing. Is you are in charge, and there's an onus on you to get up there and not let anything get out of control. I actually saw conductors. We used to have a phrase for this. They couldn't stand the orchestra playing too loud and getting too exciting. I, I know it sounds absolutely nuts, but this happened a lot. We had this phrase. It was called getting the palm. And <laughs> we were overloading them with too much emotional energy. And <laughs> the they palm going the down, palm. yes. Too much. Brass, that's the too quiet, much. Quiet down. That's what the audience is paying for. Uh, and it, it really was a limit. There was like, like a governor uh, on a machine inside of them. They couldn't handle more emotional energy than X because it made them uncomfortable. And I'm kind of getting to this, um, this emotional box issue that I, that I keep coming back to. And to step back and say, well, I'm the leader, but yes, I'm going to just defer to you know, the expertise in front of you. This was the magic trick of the top conductors, what you just talked about. Uh, Bernard Heitink, I'll name names, he is famous for ending rehearsals early. He says, well, I think you know it, goodbye. <laughs> and the or- orchestra loves him. They love him. And the or- then there's the other guys who want to use the whole two and a half hours, whether they need it or not. And the orchestra hates them. And so you see that how the f- person who follows the correct process is hated. The one who disregards it and, sa- and trusts gets a fa- fabulous result. That's my res- that is a nutshell of a long response I could give to that question. Well, I, I want to, this is Bonnie, I want to jump in with one of, uh, a talking point, a discussion statement from Janet Wood, because I think this is a great place to interject this point, Janet, and have you run with this. Janet says, to achieve sustainable success requires leaders who have a balance between driving business results and developing talent. I sense that that's where we've been dipping our toe in this conversation. So, Janet, why don't you lead us on this, this conversation thread, and of course we will have Carrie and Justin chime in. So, there is that sense of that's that mandate, that responsibility. You have to have business results, but you've got to develop the people on the team, too. So talk to us about that balance, Janet. Well, I think it's, I mean, it, you can have success in the short term if you just focus on business results. Mm-hmm. But if you don't focus on developing your team, then you're not going to have that sustainable success. You're going to have a quarter-by-quarter quarter results. But how do you make sure that, you know, three quarters from now, five quarters from now, ten quarters of now, you're successful if you don't really focus on the team that you've got? So the way that I think of it is leadership is really a profession. It's not enough to just deliver on the business. And if we talk about millennials and early talents, you know, they want to come to a company that's going to invest in them. They're, they're only going to be attracted to organizations that they know are going to invest in them, and they're only going to stay in organizations that invest in them. And we all talk about the war for talent. So from my perspective, if companies don't figure that out and they don't find that balance between business and developing their teams, they're not going to attract or retain the best talent, and they're not going to be successful, not even in the long term. I don't think they'll be successful in the midterm. Mm, Interesting. Carrie, thoughts? Well, I think it's a classic leadership and management problem you know when you when you think about leadership perhaps that's providing the vision and thinking over the the long term and re, we reward people and promote them because of their management skills what can they do to provide control and focus 
as, um, you know, as Justin has said. So, uh, you know, I, I think the best of people are both leaders and managers, and, and, you know, they do their best to balance this. I mean, you look at what Jeff Bezos is doing at um, Amazon, and he's getting criticized for his quarterly, um, his quarterly progress and not delivering on results, but he's definitely got a view of the long term and wants to reinvest that money. Um, and take the criticism. I think that's part of what what's the difficult part is where do you take some criticism about your delivery on the short term in order to to benefit the long term? Justin, thoughts on this? Well, I'll share kind of a story here. I was in, um, let's just say, an orchestra, and there was a guy who was the principal player in a section. And it, the, where I'm going with this story is incentives. And this guy was in control, in control of who else played in his section, and he made sure that people who were hired to play in his section weren't quite as good as he was, because that way we could never fire him because we had a guy next to him who could take his place if he ever, you know, got, got an attitude problem. And it was a way of maintaining job security for himself. And when he left, the whole section fell apart because there was no leadership left in it. And so... What I look at when we talk about, you know, first quarter versus out, you know, if somebody's going to retire, you know, next quarter, I'm not saying this is, you know, but I'm kind of a Machiavellian when it comes to this kind of thing. I always look at this from, well, what's, what's the incentive of the individual people? Do they just see the next quarter? Or do they have an investment in the company 20 years down the road, even when they're not going to be here? Um, it's, it's case by case. Okay. Janet, Bonnie, you want to tell us? Yeah, a, please. I just had a comment to say, I think it's... It's a really difficult market to ask leaders to do this because everybody is judged on every single quarter. So, you know, mm-hmm. as Justin was saying, the reality is that it's, it's all about the next 90 days. But at the same time, the really good leaders that I see do have that balance. They're obviously very focused on delivering the business results, whether that's revenue or products or, you know, support for customers. But at the same time, they are developing their leaders. They're making the investment. They're making sure they have the skills to be successful in the future. Because the, the market, technology, everything is changing so quickly that if you don't help your employees keep up, you know, you're just not going to get there. But it's a, it is a tough balance to make. It's not easy these days. It well, is. I would also and, and, add there's a guy ahead, who runs the, Sorry? Go ahead, uh, go ahead. The guy who runs the NFL, he, he has this phrase, he says, think league, because a rising tide lifts all boats. And there's always an advantage to investing in the company's health as opposed to your own uh, relative wealth within that individual group and taking the, the advance of the company for granted, which many people do. Thank you. I, I want to focus this on, uh, I'm looking ahead at some discussion points from Carrie Williard before, you sent me before the show. I think this is a good time to segue into a slightly different area here. Talking about visibility and being judged and graded. Uh, somebody mentioned that just a second ago. Carrie told me in her notes, one million professors are being evaluated by their students on ratemyprofessor.com. And she adds, it won't be long before all managers are publicly rated on sites like glassdoor.com. We just had Will Staney who left SAP recently to go be chief talent warrior, I think is his new title, at Glassdoor. So we're very familiar with that. Carrie, why don't you take us into this realm, the realm of the discussion of uh, who's watching and what are they doing about it, and are we now looking for leaders by acclamation or even by vote? And I know you have an opinion on that, too. Well, I think we are moving into a recognition that leaders require followers. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, just like just like journalists today, you don't get a journalism job unless you're willing to help promote your own work. You don't get a social marketing job unless you can demonstrate that you can build followership in a social platform. I think the same trend is moving in into leadership. You have to have people that will follow you. I'm not of the opinion that every that a leader is good in every situation that he or she could be in. Um, some some followers resonate with some leaders and vice versa and it's I don't think leadership is such an ingrained innate portable skill that you could put them in any environment and let them be successful. So I think really understanding how how are people resonating with their followers is an important thing, and it's going to get more visible. Already Glassdoor used to just do the CEO evaluation, and now it's moved down to division heads. Um, on places like, um, there, are, there are a couple of um, you know, places on the web, Cube Duel, where people are being rated on how they, how they are viewed by their peers or, or by their subordinates. So we already do 360s. Some 360s are made public in companies. Mm-hmm. So can't I think run, I we're hide. preparing for this future of, of our, our performance as a leader is, is, is visible. Very, very much. I was commenting uh, just a second ago, you can't run, you can't hide. It's, it's all going to be out there. Justin Locke, thoughts on what uh, Carrie just shared with us? Well, you know, it, I can't speak to the, the corporate end of it so much, but it, it kept mm-hmm. resonating in my mind about was Arthur Fiedler. Uh, mm-hmm. This was a guy who was very popular. He was the most successful conductor in history. But I must tell you that the members of the Boston Pops at the time absolutely hated him. Uh, they had such an antagonistic relationship. It was it was just beyond belief. And I, I sometimes I mean what what I mean I, I always like to take the um, devil's advocate you know contrarian side. And so you have to say that sometimes you know leaders are people that you don't like. Uh, as, as opposed to the the person who's the most popular, who's going to give you you know the the best outcome, and you know someone that I like may not be the person who's really the best person for that nasty job to make people work a little harder. Uh, I, for want of a better mm-hmm. phrase, I'm sorry, that's not really what I meant. But at the same time, it's true that someone who is a fabulous leader who commands respect, yes. For the most part, if you know you, John Williams, Henry Mancini, people like that, and even Arthur Fiedler, I love working for the guy. But it's, you know, we have to be careful of that slippery slope of making everything a popularity contest. Uh, because very, some very people are, if they're really going to innovate, they're going to really tweak everybody's nose in the process. And if they have to get, be popular and get a stamp of approval from everyone in the company, uh, then it's going to be a democracy and not a leader anymore. Good point. Janet Wood, thoughts? Well, what comes to my mind in this conversation is, is where might leadership trust fit into this? Uh, it's something we're putting a lot of focus on at the moment because of the belief that really trust is a very foundation of leadership. And when I think about trust, I think about competence and character. It's not about liking or popularity. And it's actually a question we now ask our employees in our annual people survey because we feel it's that important. We really need to understand where, how our leaders are perceived by their teams on that subject. If you think about trust, it helps to drive simplicity. It reduces complexity. It makes you faster. It reduces costs. So it's interesting that nowhere in the definition of trust is there how popular are you, but it is about can you do the job 
You know, do you have the competence and do you have the character? Are you believable? Do you, um, do you empower your people? Do you apologize when you're wrong? Do you give people credit even if they're not in the room? You know, all the things that go along with character. So I'd be interested in hearing from Carrie and Justin kind of their thoughts around how trust might fit into this discussion. Yeah, let's do that. Carrie, first? Yeah, well, I, I think, I think when, when we say, does someone have followers? I do not mean that as parallel to popular. So I, I think most rational people, especially in a business environment, when you say, who do you want to follow, they're not saying, oh, I like that person because they're funny and popular. They're saying, I like that person because I trust them, uh, good because point. they inspire confidence mm-hmm. in me. And, um, you know, just because I'm sitting in front of my laptop here to go back to Justin, I looked up... Arthur Fiedler, and he died in 1979. And I, you know, I would, you know, posit that we've just got we're we're changing as a society in terms of what we look for from leaders. That back then it was okay to be very hierarchical and and directorial. And I think now people want that part of trust is transparency about how I how I lead. And so I, I absolutely am in favor of whoever inspires confidence in you and who you trust as who you want to follow as opposed to, um, you know, who do I think is, like in high school, a popular kid. I, I don't think most people would choose that way. Good, well, good point. I'd love Thanks to, for, yep. Let me Go jump ahead, in. Justin. First of all, you're both hitting the nail right on the head and so much. And The thing about Arthur was the audience trusted him. I mean, he was uh, cantankerous with his with the musicians, and there he had mm-hmm. there was actually a method in his madness. But I just want to back up and apologize here because I want to make the you know I should have made a better point that than agree with you that uh, he was trustworthy. The audience, you could go to a pops concert and you could trust Arthur to put on a good show for you, mm-hmm. and that's why he built up you know that that audience trust over over years and years and years, and it was just a fabulous franchise that he created. Uh, but and Janet, I would also just want to mirror that. That was the key word, you know, whenever I talk about what makes a major orchestra happen is the trust. I couldn't believe it when I went into Symphony Hall for the first time. Once they know your face, you have 24-hour access, and there's millions of dollars worth of stuff just lying around. And I could show up at 3 o'clock in the morning and go up and practice on the stage. I had an instrument that in today's dollars was over $60,000. I just left it on the stage when I wasn't using it. Never, never gave it a second thought. Uh, it was just that's the culture, and you have to trust everyone when the music's playing. You're, it, it's, it was delicious. I mean, I get excited <laughs> just sitting here talking about how you could be in that total trust mode with 90 other people. Oh, uh-huh. it, was, it was just magnificent. And that's really uh, – and then when you see uh, – and when I saw people make mistakes, they would bring in a second-rate player and hide them in the back of the second violin sections. Everybody knew, and the trust just died. And you could just – and that was like these little things that would just, you know, kill, kill the magic. So, yeah, this – if we really want to talk about leadership and, and everything, I think trust and perception, those were uh, – you know, you talked about simplicity, too – that was a great point because simplicity is really about, well, I'll let Bonnie take that over, but I just wanted to mirror that. That's really what, what I saw no, that, happening is the key thing. 
And, and Justin, thanks for those points. I'm thinking in terms of the big audience with Arthur Fiedler leading the Boston Pops, and I'm thinking of how we open talking about you as a dancer. That's a one-on-one leadership. Your partner has to trust you, period. Even oh just gosh. that one partner. And the dance floor, and you do exhibition-style dancing in West Coast Swing, you told me, and if there isn't trust standing out in front of a whole bunch of people, but it's just that one partner has to trust you, and that's probably the one-on-one relationship a leader has to have with each member of their team. We're almost at time for break, but I want to see Sneak in one more topic, and we may not even hit the break. We may not even get it. But uh, I want to. I'm looking at Carrie Williard. There's a point you made here that I think we would be remiss if we didn't hit on it. You say in a recent Oxford Economics SAP survey, only 34% of executives said their leadership teams were prepared to lead a more diverse workforce. Yet the face of the workforce is becoming undeniably more diverse. Let's hit on that briefly, Carrie. Carrie, and then Justin, and then Janet. And if we have to skip the break, we'll slide right into our predictions round. So, Carrie, would you just uh, take us through this, please? We surveyed 27 countries. And one of the interesting things was, uh, you know, we just asked leaders whether they agreed with the statement, we're prepared to lead in a more diverse workplace. And uh, and only 34% agreed with that statement, uh, which we found fairly astounding. In the, U- in the United States, more than half of the babies born every year are non-Caucasian. Uh, more women are earning PhDs and, and uh, degrees now. So we're definitely headed. If you just fast forward, you can see we're going to be in a more diverse. We're working in more global environments. So... It's not unusual to have on your team, well, you know, here's Janet calling from Germany, even though that's not her home country. So, so, so we're diverse in so many different ways, and I, um, I, I, I think we're remiss if we don't look forward to plan for being able to lead in a really diverse environment. Thank you. Janet Wood or Justin Locke, who wants to chime in on this one? Okay, well, I'm fascinated by this topic of, of managing diversity, and it, it really is a, a double-edged sword here. And on the one hand, we all like to categorize, and we like to talk about, you know, like men are from Mars, women are from Venus, the differences between our culture and your culture and what makes us unique. That's half of it. But on the other half is what makes us all the same. I mean, what our DNA is, what, one-tenth of one percent is the greatest difference between your DNA and mine? So as it gets back to my, my uh, point of leadership being about perception, I mean, you have to be, it's hard to be so uh, sensitive to cultural and gender differences in different countries. And, and, we, and it's important to learn all those things that happen from generations and different cu- cultures, et cetera, et cetera. But from an artistic perspective, I would like to make the, the, the just tr- balance that a little bit by saying there are things that everybody has in common. And so as a leader, I would try to focus, you know, certainly, I mean, I don't want to sound like I'm saying the the sensitivity, the difference is not as important, but also be aware of, you know, because, you know, Michelangelo's David was 500 years ago. Should we throw it away? Uh, Hey, you know, it still seems to resonate with people. So there are things that we all share in common that work. And, and, you know, you want to balance that as a leader and perceive that within yourself and others. Janet Wood? Well, I find that statistic really depressing, to be quite honest. I think mm-hmm. uh, I worked for IBM a long time ago, and it was about 15 years ago, and IBM was perceived to be a leader in this space, that there was diversity councils, and we've all had diversity councils, and 
you know, and yet it feels like when you look at that statistic, wow, are we really making any progress? And I think the challenge is, from my perspective, one of the challenges is there's so many unconscious biases. I don't think people are really, you know, if they're not able to manage diversity well, it's not intentional. It's that they really don't know what they don't know. And so the question is, like, how do you really effectively move past those? And, I mean, I've read articles about Google and Facebook, and we look at it as well in SAP, and it just feels like nobody's really cracked the code of how to really make diversity work for you. I think we all believe inherently in the value of diversity. It completely makes sense in terms of driving innovation, different perspectives, different points of view. You know, that's how you get drive creativity. And yet it feels like we can't turn it into just reality and kind of day-to-day working mode. So it's, um, I find it a bit depressing. Not sure what the key to success is with that one. Well, we'd like to see that number change over the the coming years. I know that. Guess what, panel? We've got about seven minutes left till the end of the show, and we were having such a good time talking. I made the leadership decision not to take our final break, and I'm going to make the equal leadership decision here to go right into our crystal ball predictions round. I know you've all prepared for this, and you may have to change some of your predictions based on what we've explored in the conversation here. So, Justin Locke, I'm going to give you exactly two minutes on the clock. Take your two minutes. And tell me, Justin, if you look ahead in the crystal ball, whether it's it's the one you got from the Boston Pops or, or something that's uh, coming up in your new book or whatever, wherever you're getting it, can you see clearly to the year 2020 or is there a better time for which you'd like to give us your predictions on the leadership crisis and what will be different in the future? Justin Locke, go ahead. Well, I'm going to be somewhat Orwellian here <laughs> and say an awful lot of anything that you do Anything that is a repetitive task that can be known or written down or someone can see you doing it twice in a row is going to be done by a machine. Uh, even, you know, the mathematics and sciences that we're teaching our kids eventually going to write software that's going to be able to do that. I've been downsized twice in my life, both as a bass player and as a video producer, and I've seen how technology just eliminates the need for a certain kind of repetitive, uh, limited, finite task. What's really I don't know what's going to happen because we're really going to have to make a choice here as a society, as a culture, as the leaders. What are they going to do? Are they just going to play it safe and just let it go into this ever-increasing uh, uh, you know, polarity between the, the written distance between the rich and poor? Or are we going to see, you know, just like the people who made the looms, you know, back in, in the, the, the Luddites who destroyed the loom factories because they were out of work, you have to see that automation and the digital revolution is freeing us to be more of who we are. And everyone can become a name artist like Gucci or Armani because the value is in having a connection to you because the work itself, you know, that's not, the value isn't there. But I don't know which way we're going to go. I can't predict that. I, 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 I hope we go the second way, but I'm worried. That's my prediction. Okay, well, it's good to be worried sometimes. That means you're paying attention and you have have concerns that we know are very warranted. Janet Wood, take a look in the crystal ball. What does it say and how far out in the future can you make a prediction, Janet? Well, I think out five years and despite my last comment about being depressed, I'm actually very optimistic about leadership, mainly because I think it's a matter of survival. It's about organizations and leadership evolving or, frankly, the organization is going to disappear I think that learning cultures will be a lot more common than they are today. I think business results will be seen more and more. They're just not enough because you just won't attract 
the talent that you need, and you certainly won't keep the talent that you need. So if I think about SAP and the investment we're making in leadership, and I don't just mean money, I also mean just time and emotional energy and, and the focus that we're putting on it, I think our leaders really understand that this is going to make them, SAP, and our customers more successful. So it's a matter of survival, and I'm optimistic that uh, you know we're going to make the shift, and I don't just mean SAP, I mean organizations are going to make the shift because we have to. Thank you very much. And Carrie Williard, thoughts? You, you have a plenty of time. We've, we've been going short here on our comments. So take two or three minutes, whatever you want, and if not, we'll throw in a bonus question. Go ahead. Okay. Well, I, you know, I think there's a really interesting demographic shift that's happening. So we have this big, what people are calling the gray tsunami, the, the baby boomers who are approaching retirement in the United States. That's 10,000 people every day turn 65. And even though people are staying in the workforce a little longer, it's, it's a tsunami no matter what. A smaller generation behind it in uh, Gen X and then a big generation in the millennials. So I think what's going to happen is that we've got this opportunity as, as baby boomers are leaving the workforce to think about do we replace them one for one? Does every middle manager that's going out the door get replaced by another middle manager or do we start to increase the spans of control and do we start to rethink the way we're doing management? and have more flexibility in how teams are organized. Um, And a leader is a leader for a period of time and then goes back into an individual role and then back out. So I see a lot more fluidity and flexibility in, in management going forward. Thank you, Carrie. I have a question for you and the whole panel. What will the place be for millennials? We've talked about them several times during the show. The place for them up and coming into leadership roles. Would you take, and Carrie, you just said, do you replace a baby boomer one-on-one with somebody else in the middle management cycle, perhaps, or the middle, middle management hierarchy? Will, will the millennials ascend more quickly because we have all this awareness about what it takes to fill that leadership crisis. Just quickly, what's the role of millennials coming up in terms of more evolved, enlightened, trustworthy managers? Uh, Carrie, why don't you start? And then we'll a quick answer from Justin, a quick answer from Janet. Go ahead, Carrie. Well, I think first off, because there's going to be a lot of openings just because of the gray tsunami, millennials are going to get a, a fair shots at those jobs as well. There's just not enough gen, uh, of the um, Gen X in between. So I think they're going to have really um, opportunistic uh, roles coming forward, especially when it's uh, when our consumers look millennial as well. And so, uh, you, you know, we'd like like Justin said earlier, Fiedler could resonate with his audiences, and I think if our audiences are largely millennial, we'll need leaders who can who can resonate with those audiences. Thank you, Justin. I'll give you uh, two sentences on this, real fast. Agree? Disagree? Um, I will agree and also add that I think if these millennials are smart, they will do what I call a cultural tapestry and reach out to those retired baby boomers and turn them into mentors and advisors. Beautiful. Mm -hmm. Love it. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much. Janet Wood, thoughts on that quickly? Well, I, I just spent a half a day last week at SAP's Early Talent Academy in the Bay Area, and wow, those are impressive young talent. They are so self-assured, so self-confident. I have no doubt in my mind they're going to move up quickly. 
Thank you very much. Great answer. And you all sneak, snuck it in here. I have one minute to go. Thank you so much. What a great conversation. You're all just so amenable to pushing the topic in so many different directions. I want to thank our special panelists today, Justin Locke. Justin, stay in touch, please. And good luck oh. with the new book. Janet Wood, thank you for calling in from Germany. Carrie Williard, thanks for stepping in. Always happy to have you. Shout-outs to Sylvia Lennon, who's been tweeting her tootsies off, capturing words of wisdom alongside me at hashtag SAP Radio. Thanks also to Steve. Stephen Thorne, who works on supporting the show. He's traveling right now. Let's see. It's Monday. Well, that means we'll be back on Wednesday with Coffee Break with Game Changers. I'll be back with another live show at 8 a.m. Pacific, 11 Eastern on Wednesday. It's a doubleheader day on Wednesday. In the afternoon at 3 p.m. Eastern, I'll be back with the Customer Edge with Game Changers, also a live new show. And Thursday morning, we have another edition of Future of Business with Game Changers. That's our week here on SAP Radio. So I want to give my call to action to all of our listeners. Fasten your seatbelt. What are you waiting for? Go out and be a game changer today. Bonnie D. Graham signing off for another live edition of HR Trends with Game Changers presented by SAP. Bye-bye. Thanks again for tuning in to HR Trends with Game Changers presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. To keep the conversation going, tweet your questions and comments to Twitter, hashtag SAPRADIO. Please join host Bonnie D. Graham again next Monday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Business Channel. We wish you a positively game-changing week.